Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. James Milton of the Milton Winery here today. Hello, sir. How are you? Good morning to you. So you're based in New Zealand in Gisborne. I come from a little town called Gisborne on the east coast, northeast coast of New Zealand. In fact, one of the things that we're famous for is that it's the first city in the world to see the sunrise each day. Oh, okay. So I'm kind of like getting your sloppy seconds. Yeah, yeah. By the time it comes here, we've used it. (laughs) How did you end up there? Uh, That's where my wife comes from, and it was one of the initial wine-growing regions of New Zealand way back in the 60s and 70s. How did that start to get going in the 60s and the 70s? Who was there and what were they planning? Oh, well, there were some big wine companies and they were planting, you wouldn't believe it, Muller and hybrid varieties and all that sort of stuff that people wanted to drink in those days to make jug wine or cask wine. Where is Gisborne exactly? It's like north of Hawke's Bay. It's on the in the North Island on the East Coast. So somewhat so, close to the water. Yeah, yeah. We're, our vineyards are sort of within five kilometers of the Pacific Ocean. Which kind of makes it an interesting area because during the heat of the summer, it's quite cool because we get this nice refreshing air off the Pacific Ocean. It's good. It's refreshing. So in an era before Marlboro got really popular. Where is that? Yeah, exactly. It was an area that people were planting early plantations for vines in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Because the wine industry started off really in Auckland at the center top North Island. And the main people growing grapes came from Dalmatia which was then became Yugoslavia. And then the taste for wine in the late 60s started to develop, and so they needed to have more grapes. As a consequence of that, they came to Gisborne because there was land available and there was diversity and the ability to grow good grapes. And that took place in the 60s to 70s, and then at about 1974, they then started expanding into Marlborough, uh, making Hawke's Bay a little bit bigger. So the I think as the confidence came in the wine growing, where they thought it was too cold to grow grapes, then uh, they realized that they could do very good quality wine further south. What was your own route to Gisborne? When did you end up there and where were you before that? Oh, well, I come from the deep dark of the South Island. And when I left school, I did a, an apprenticeship with a wine company who happened to have vineyards in Gisborne. And uh, then I met a girl and that's where she came from. And her father was a farmer. And she became my wife some years later. And did you work in other areas? You mentioned you were working for another company. Where was that? Spent some time with the Alumba in Australia. And then in Europe, I did a course with Maison Seychelles in 
Bordeaux and then worked in Germany for two and a half years with Sichelsen. So this is like as a young, impressionable age of, uh, how would you say, 19 till 20, uh, no, 20 till 22, when, you know, the colors are bright and the sound is beautiful and the taste is German Riesling, you know, imagine being a 21-year-old tasting your first real German Rieslings and remember that this was after the 76 harvest where there's classic wines. Those sort of leave a template with you that you never, ever forget for your whole life. So that was an impressionable time. Then I was going to study in Germany. And uh, if you like, being a young Kiwi, I just wanted to come back home and then get into it. So you met this uh, young girl. You fell in love. You moved to her neck of the woods. Yeah. And you started up a winery under your own name. How did that happen? Sure. Well, it's very interesting because it's all about financial management and investments and securing your investment and the best opportunity. After being married for four years, my father-in-law said he had some vineyards and he said, we should start making some wine. And uh, of course, I was young and eager, ready to really put my spade in the ground. And I jumped at the opportunity. And I don't know how you call it in America, we're just breaking dirt. You know, when you're putting your foundations down for the building or the cellar. And uh, the newspaper came along and they were interviewing us about this new winery because it was exciting in those days. This is 1983 to see some new development. And uh, they asked me what the name of the winery is going to be. And I turned to my father-in-law and said, well, and as a matter of fact, uh, you better ask him. He's the person who's sort of the, the finance behind it. And he turned his back on me and he said, no, no, it's got nothing to do with me. And I thought, bugger that. I'm not going to be left held up here like this. So I said, no, it's going to be called Milton Vineyard after my own name. And of course, the situation was that I'm pretty sure that when he turned his back and was sort of walking away, he uh, had a huge smile on his face because he realized that as soon as you put your name on the on the uh, development, your ass is on the line and you're not going to give up ever. And you stay really determined. So uh, that's how we came to make Milton Vineyard in, in Gisborne, New Zealand. What do you grow there today? What vines do you work with? It's developed over 30 years that we've come to the point of what we want to grow. And we recognize that we have four or five tastes in our mouth, which is centered around sweet, sour, salt, and astringent, and umami. So as a consequence of four varieties that we champion is Chenin Blanc, which is, you know, we've got quite a cult following for, for Milton Vineyard Chenin Blanc. I like it a lot. It's nice. It's very good, and it represents the acidic side of the taste buds. And then we have Viognier, which is looking at the salty or the umami characters. We have Chardonnay, which is looking at the phenolics or the tannin or the astringency or the bitterness. And then we make a Riesling, which is sort of like an old-fashioned Spätlaser style. So that's dealing with the sweet. So therefore, we have Chenin, Viognier, Chardonnay, and Riesling for the sweet, sour, salt, and astringent taste. White wines, North Island, New Zealand. Yeah. But you also do biodynamic farming. And how did you get started with that? Because you were somewhat early in the game. How did, how did that come along? You know what? I think if you're sitting in the subway and you can feel the train coming into the station and you're not too sure where you're going, whether you're going north or south, but you feel the wind in your face and you don't look in the front of the train to see where the train's headed and that's when it stops in front of you and these doors open up and this beautiful warmth and light comes out of the train and you think, my God, I've got to get on board this thing. And uh, once again, at an impressionable age, the train came into my station and I just jumped on board. Of course, there was no other passengers on the train in those days, so it was quite lonely. And we didn't know where we're headed, but uh, the impulse of intuition took us to, how would I say, the biggest train station I've ever arrived in, which is Biodynamic Wine Growing. 
and what what does that represent for you? Well, it's like a completion of every sense that humanity has, centered around the most determining sense, which is common sense, I think, without being too flippant. Bio is about life and dynamic is about energy. It's based on the lectures and philosophies of Dr. Rudolf Steiner, who gave these indications in 1924 in in Germany, in fact. And uh, it's just about looking at life the other way around. So instead of it being a challenge, it's it's an absolute joy to be working with life energy as opposed to be going against it. I mean, my little email footer says, farming ease, not fighting disease, which is, I think, you know, we've got to come to that point. Mother Nature has been forgiving us for long enough for our irresponsibility to the land and the food that comes off it. But you were kind of, I mean, New Zealand, not a hotbed of biodynamic farming even today. And you were kind of early into that fight before a lot of people in Europe. How did Who tipped you off and how did that come about? Uh, I guess it was just one person. He came from Holland and applied to come and work in our vineyard. And uh, he didn't take the job because he said that the way vines were being grown in our country at that time was too much of a monoculture. And he passed me this book on biodynamic agriculture, which was a German translation, and uh, said, you should read this. And one thing led to another, and then I read the lectures from Rudolf Steiner that he's given. It's sort of like our um, reference. You never put it down. It's always sitting beside you, and you always thumb through it to find some, you know, if you have a question, the answer is just sitting three feet in front of you. You just have to reach out, and you find it. It's just a different way of looking at things. So... Well, this book is kind of like an eternal reference as to how this life energy is working. In terms of technique, what did that mean for you? Well, in terms of technique, it means that you don't use herbicide, so you don't kill the weeds. Instead, you cultivate the soil, which puts air into the soil, which feeds the microbes and gives them life. We don't kill insects, so we don't use insecticide. Instead, we plant flowers, which gives nectar to the beneficial insects, the predators and the parasites, and they deal with all the bad boys. We certainly don't use any systemic fungicides because the chemical goes inside the sap of the plant and the sap of the plant goes into the juice of the fruit and we harvest those fruits and put it through a fermentation process to make wine, of course. And if you have systemic chemicals in the wine, the yeasts don't like it. So as a result, they're not happy japs, so they produce things that don't actually smell or taste very good unless you do chemical adjustments. And so, therefore, never would we use systemic fungicide. We use a little bit of sulfur, but we use it. In actual fact, the interesting thing is that we use anything that makes a woman beautiful. So we use uh, cream from milk, and we use bentonite clay, and we use seaweed teas and stinging nettle teas and teas from herbs, which make the plant more healthy. And uh, the final thing is that we don't use soluble fertilizer because, you know... When you eat a steak, say you don't want to have a tablespoon of salt on it because it just makes it taste terrible. And it also makes you dehydrated. And when you become dehydrated, you cells start to get a little bit, I don't know, what's the word, less flaccid? So you've got to drink heaps of water so the plant goes under stress on two sides. So we'd never, ever, ever use soluble fertilizer. Instead, we make compost. Compost is like sort of the, it's like a city of activity in our own backyard did that sort of open up the mind to saying well it's not just the climate of the sky but it's also this underground kingdom 
Yes, my golly. I mean, there's a saying that we have, and that is we're not standing on dirt, we're standing on the ceiling of another kingdom. And not too many people who farm the land actually go for an adventure way, way underground. You know, you can look on the skyline here and see this massive skyscraper. If you were to invert that vision and think, my golly, this is, we've got 180 floors of inhabitants in our soil that we've got to look after. And as a result of that, in actual fact, the tenant occupying the first floor is as important to the whole structure as the tenant occupying the penthouse at the top floor. So we have to look very respectfully on to how we look after our soil and what we put in it. And, you know, it's like looking at the population, as I'm saying, it's, you've got to be good to everybody. And the funny thing is that mother nature will always pay you a, a dividend. Um, She'll pay you a reward if you're good to her. What were the rewards you saw over time? What was the development as you started to implement these methods? I guess the rewards and and what time has given us is the ability to see things in a different light. Therefore, we, I think because wine, we're using all our senses, including sound, to enjoy the fruits of the labor, we then see the tapestry getting bigger and bigger every, what I say, year? Yes, every year, with our, as our understanding increases and also as our plants get older and the soil gets older and we start to be more, have greater empathy with what, we go, with what we're doing. If we use the word confidence, I think confidence is too much of a controlling thing. So we'd like to have something that's a bit more sympathetic to our surroundings. So as a result of that, the reward is that our wines get greater texture and they get greater, hmm, not, they, yeah, that's just it. They make you go, hmm, you know, when you put it in your mouth and you swallow it and you salivate and you mouth waters and you just go, my God, I got I just love that taste. That, that's exciting. What are the tastes that you find in biodynamic wines and then in your wines in particular that you might not find in wines that aren't farmed that way? Well, that's a tricky question because, you know, we're not supposed to be sitting on a soapbox trying to be holier than thou against the vast majorities of other consumable wines on the market. But having said that, uh, when wine, which is a biological product, not a chemical product, when wine is a biological product, you see that it has greater life in it. It has a different texture, as I said before, and a different flavor. And, and those flavors... Are natural, you know. They're just what's part of the makeup of the grapes and the and the uh, expression from the soil and the way we actually feel within ourselves. So, I think the word imagination comes into this discussion, and that is that if we can use our mind in a greater dream state or a greater form of imagination, we can actually see and feel and taste and touch here the story that's being told in the glass. One of the things I've noticed about your wine is that that story tends to change with a little bit of time in the glass, yeah. uh, with a little bit of air getting into the wine. There seems to be a development. They're not sort of straightforward, one-dimensional wines. Is that something you notice? And if so, how did they change? Well, you know, because it's a living product, uh, I, that it responds to air. And so as a result, it's been transported in this bottle and when you pour it into your glass the first smell is sort of like it's immediacy and then it's like an awakening 
period that it goes through. And that could be, you know, it could be depending on the time and the temperature and where you are and the surroundings, it could be five minutes. But we've had people commenting to me just recently that they could keep the bottle for three weeks in the in the fridge without any form of protection. In other words, no inert gas on top of it. And that after three weeks, the wine's still drinking beautifully. Of course, it's not going to be as fresh and vibrant as what it was when it was first opened. So I think that they, when they're made with sensitivity, they tend to have the ability to to open up with air instead of trying to protect it. You know, if you try and protect the air from it and cover it with gas and put chemicals in there to stop the oxidation, there's only one filter that that takes out and those, that's those two kid, kidneys in, in your back and you don't want to be affecting those things too much. So what is the soil type? I mean, you're a person who thinks a lot about what the roots are going into. What is yeah. the soil type in your area? Well, because we're on the northeast coast of New Zealand, on the North Island, it's very, very young soil. It's come it's sedimentary soil that's been pulled up out of the sea recently. Uh, so it's not coming from alpine mountains and it's not coming from the solid backbone of calcium that would that we see in parts of America and we see in, in parts of the famous wine regions of France. So our soils are sedimentary with a high degree of calcium coming from the, um, the layers of skeletons of fish. But with that, these hills are soft and they have clay in them. And clay sort of gives a wine delicacy and round flavor. And as the soil has been eroded and coming down the rivers, then beside the rivers it leaves the finer particles, which are more silicaceous or lighter, silts, sands. And these are soils that produce great aroma. So... Therefore, in our region, we're producing soft, fat wines with a good uh, smell. Um, the calcium gives them the ability to last for a period of time, but not for not for years and years. But, I mean, golly, we've been making wine for 30 years, and the 1984s that we made 30 years ago are still tasting. They're old, but they're tasting good. What are the differences between the four that you make in terms of Chardonnay to Riesling to Shannon to Viognier? How do you see them? Do they have commonality? Are they very different? I think they have the thumbprint of the people who work there. That's not only including Annie, my wife, and myself, but all the people who work. So they have that degree of commonality. And also it should be understood that we're not there to try and change the chemical makeup of the wine by adding stuff to it. And over these 30 years, we've found those varieties, as we've said, that we like to grow best and that brings us happiness. And so therefore, the expression that we have from these four different varieties is a natural expression. And within that natural, unique fruit flavor, there is a point of difference between all of them in terms of the tactile response. So... The interesting point is that if you have industrial wine, it's made with the viewpoint that the market is full of competition and control. If we make biological wine, or in this instance, biodynamically grown wine, then we tend to look at it more as being a response of cooperation and diversity. And as a result of that, you have friends instead of foes. So the more people who are making biodynamic wine, there seems to be a collective of ideals. So therefore, the style of the wine 
and the wines from our colleagues has great diversity and therefore you can see an individual personality within them, within the wines from the estate and within the wines from the varieties or the, the topography or the geology of where they come from. How many colleagues are there really in the, the biodynamic frame of mind in New Zealand? What's the climate like today for biodynamic farming? Well, I actually chair New Zealand Organic Wine Growers Association and we came up with a phrase or a catch. Someone said we've got to make a goal and a boundary. You know how they say these sort of things when you're sitting around a table? And two years, three years ago, they said, uh, come on, give us a goal. And I said, well, let's head for 20% of the vineyards in New Zealand should be certified organic by 2020. And they went, oh, my God, that's impossible. You'll never get to that point. And I said, no, you just have a look. And uh, that was three years ago. We're now sitting at 10.2%. The world is moving so fast. I mean, from the first time I came into America and came into New York to have a look at what was happening on on the shelves of shops, you never, ever, ever saw the word biodynamic. And now I go in there last night and have a look around the place, and biodynamic, there's, it's, it's getting some light, and it's a movement that's happening. It's it's a energy that is going out there. So 20% by 2020 is what we're aiming for in this country from New Zealand. Also, we're a member of a group called Renaissance des Appellations, which is a group which started off 2004 with 50 wine growers. Most of them were from France. Now we have over 180 people in this group and there's more and more and more people knocking on the door. So this influence is coming back to New Zealand because of being a young country, we have young winemakers or young wine geeks who are going out to the world and a new generation of wine geeks is coming into the market. And as a result, they're seeing what these young guys are doing in France and Italy and Spain, Georgia, Germany and uh, seeing that people are, you know, the, the tapestry is changing. People want to have substance now. They don't want to have just something that is has no love. And speaking about biodynamic and light, I've heard you talk about luminosity in wine. What oh, does yeah. that mean for you and what does it mean for your wines? Well, you know, when I referred to earlier on that we don't use fertilizer, so because it's a salt process, we look at the polarity between calcium and silica between limestone and the soil, and silt or sand or quartz. One absorbs earth and water and the other one reflects. The quartz reflects air and light. So consequently, one of the major things we do is to form, give form to the leaves and form to the fruit and form to the animals and form to the grasses and herbs and everything else that grows. And by doing this, we apply a little bit of quartz crystals that's ground up and prepared in a special way, mixed up in warm water, same temperature as your blood. I uh, can't give that to you in Fahrenheit, but it's about 38 <laughs> degrees centigrade. And we spray it when the sun's coming up in the morning time. First rays of sun into the air as a fine mist. And with that, this could go on for a long time, but hey, I'll give you the short one. The sun's rays go through this energized water and this mist and this mist falls on the leaves and as a result makes an imprint on the form of what it is that's been growing. So it's bringing in a whole lot of light, energy. It makes things pointy and sharp and vivid and vibrant. And what we see in the wine is that we now start talking about this thing that the wine contains lumens or lumens as a measurement of light. And as a result, when you're sitting with a glass of wine in a good space, 
the wine gives off this luminosity. It has a shine to it. You know, it's, it's almost singing. It's so bright. And this is a result of part of the biodynamic preparations. And it actually gives a sense of joy to the eye. It's bright, it's shiny. It's uh, lumens, it's luminosity. It's a fantastic thing. And I've heard you speak about the meniscus before of the oh, white yes. wines you make. How does that stand out for you? Well, I think if you take a glass of wine and you tilt it on the side and you have a look at the light shining out of it, but also you have a look at the front wave of the wine as it goes across the glass, it's sort of like a, it's, it, to my impression, it has a, it doesn't sort of fall off the glass. It wants to hold itself back into the glass. So therefore, the meniscus or the little curvy bit at the front edge of the wine tends to be deeper than one would otherwise imagine with other wines because it's got this life energy in here which is, in effect, holding it back into the glass. It's like a meandering river that is flowing very beautifully slowly and not cascading over a waterfall and trying to fall away. So I think, and I think the impression that I have from my colleagues as well, is that we're seeing as the vines get older and the dynamics of the biology get greater, we're getting more texture, which is resulting in a deeper meniscus. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate about your white wines is the texture. It yeah. seems like they're... They have a lifted aromas, but it's not just aroma, and there's base notes as well. So it's I certainly see what you're referring to in the wines that you produce. It doesn't seem just like a, you know, a pipe dream. It seems like to be tasteable. Yeah, well, pipe dream. That's interesting you say that because another little phrase that we have, a quote from my friend Nicolas Joly in the Loire Valley, where he states that before a wine can be great, it must first be true, which I think is interesting because. You have to look at the truth of the wine that's coming there. And if you find that the flavor and tastes are pleasing to you, then it means that there hasn't been much interruption there. So you're a member of the Renaissance de Appellation, which is Jolie's biodynamic group yeah. that he started. What have you taken from Nicolas Jolie? What's your relationship like and, and how has he influenced you or the other way around? I think that we sit on the same side of the table. I have tremendous respect for him. And I have a feeling that it's a two-way street because we've both been doing it for about the same amount of time. I think we've both been exposed to praise and criticism. Every time you take a glass of Coulet de Saron, it's another story. In fact, it's a big story. It's a deep story. And that's Nicola. And within the rest of the group, there's some amazing people who, you know, as a young New Zealand wine grower, just to get one drop from their glass and to taste that is, uh, is, is an experience that you never forget. So in the instance of getting together as a group, we had the ability to taste and talk and, and have a bit of a chat. Us Kiwis are not quite serious as the French people, so we tend to give them a bit of a, how do you say, trying to use some lighthearted humor with them to liven them up. Luminous humor. Luminous, yes, exactly. And then Lumiere said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the movement has grown both in terms of Jolie's Renaissance group and then the group in your own country that you're, you yes. chair. But what have the, the other days been like? I mean, what has it been like taking criticism? Oh, that's a big one. Uh, it's interesting because wine is so subjective. And as a result of that, you become very attached to what it is that you've worked all year for. 
And if someone gives you a good praise, then you have confidence and, um, and you have a, an ability to go forward. If someone criticizes it, you then have got to look at the judgment of the person who's criticizing it to see whether they have spent much time down there cutting the rug. And invariably, criticism is made by people who are trying to create an impression about a subject that they have an overall view on that's not too deep. We actually have produced this wine called Crazy by Nature. It's, in, it's sort of like a phrase that we have for people who are a bit crazy. And uh, it's, uh, the slogan says that in 1984, they thought we were crazy to do what it is, where we do it, and how we do it. And we just spent the last 30 years proving to them that, in fact, they were right. We are crazy. But it appears that now everybody else wants to be crazy. So the criticism has been one thing, but the but you know let's look on the upside of it is that the journey has been the most amazing. Every day, we every year we're learning something new, something something more profound. It's an, it's another story. We look at the disregard the critics and look at all the bright side first. And who helps you do this? What's your team like, and who are they, and how do you find them, and who comes to you? Or oh, we've got our team is fairly solid. They've been with us for years and years. So three guys in the vineyard have been there for, oh, between the three of them, they would have been there for about 80 years collectively. Um, we have a person in the cellar who's joined us recently. Uh, we have some business people who look after the, you know, you can't be green if you're always in the red. So the most important thing is that we've got to be able to look after the ledger as well. So my wife is very good at that, and she is assisted there by a couple of people. And... Uh, we never advertise for people to work. Um, it's interesting, if you put a bright side forward, you always get a reflection. So as a consequence, we have a lot of people who wanted to come to see what the hell's going on. And uh, interns coming from all around the world. And every vintage, we, every harvest season, we take on two or three people. We have a little selection criteria as to, as to what they have to um, tell us about themselves because after all, Someone sends you an email, they don't actually send you a picture as well. So we ask them three questions, and the first question is, can they cook? Because we want to know how their senses are and where their taste is. And the next one is, what sort of music do they like? So we want to know if they're a little bit jazzy or a little bit funky as to where their temperament is. And the third one is that we want to know what their star sign is. Because when we're working biodynamically, we're doing it all this work in conjunction with the rhythm of the moon and the sun and the planets and the day and the night and the warmth and the cold. So we want to see how that person relates to the work as to, as to whether they're curiously, mildly interested or, or they are completely embracing about what it is that this experience could do to them. So those are the three questions we ask. It's amazing the responses you get. It's incredible. What has worked and what hasn't worked? I mean, have there been people like, I'm an Aries, and you're like, oh, the last time we had an Aries down here. I mean, what's it really like in reality? What have you found on the, on the ledger sheet in well, terms of? Well, it's, it's not actually a, a sense of judgment about what someone's star sign is, but at least we get a little bit of a look into how, as to how they might be. If I could be that profound in saying that and having that opinion, I mean, it's very dictatorial, you could say. The experiences have always been very good as far as I can see. Uh, I think as well, you know, every morning when we start work, we all shake hands together. And I think that's a wonderful thing. We see it a lot here in America and we see it a lot in Europe, of course. 
And as being, you know, shy, reserved Kiwis, it's quite good to thrust your hand out there and feel the other person's soul and spirit. And uh, we can sort of tell how, in doing that, we can tell how we're looking at approaching the day or how we're approaching the new week. So from a sociological point of view, it's it's uh, biodynamic as well, I guess. It's good, I love it. Have you moved away from monoculture in other ways? I mean, is this oh, sure. more of a, a vine farm or a farm or what do we have there? Well, we're sticking to our primary activity, which is wine growing. But within the wine growing, we have all, within the vineyard itself, we have uh, herbs, different, uh, we have a herbal um, sword. In fact, so much so that you can actually bend down and just eat some of the grasses and herbs that are growing there. So I wonder that they shouldn't take time and stop for lunch. They should just keep working. Not really. But then amongst the vineyards, we have uh, lines of orange trees, which attract a little purple shield ladybird. And they also produce oranges, which we can sell at the market. Uh, during the pruning time in the winter, we can have oranges to eat. So it gives us uh, uh, some vitamin C. We have grevillea trees, crimson flowers that attract native birds and bees. We have beehives. In fact, I'm really over the moon by the fact that uh, we've just established this collection of top bar hives, which is a special hive that the bee likes to live in. Because after all, the bees are the policemen of the air and the light. If the bees are there and they're in harmony, then all the insects will stay as insects and they won't become pests. It's another little differentiation in the strata, in the strata of life. And then we're growing vegetables and we have sheep and cattle and I'm just reading this wicked book on the moment on how to farm Iberico pigs to uh, do charcuterie. Uh, we have olives. And I think that with the next generation, my children who are coming on and joining us, then this is their fascination is it's just not about the one glass of wine. It's about the, everything else that goes on the table as well and how that nutritional energy can be shared with people. It's, it's horribly exciting, I kind of think. Steiner, uh, the person, Rudolf Steiner, who delivered the biodynamic lectures that the practices eventually became based on, didn't drink alcohol. Yeah. And then you're sort of grappling with that idea. How did that affect your own thinking and, and doings? Well, yes, that's an interesting one because, of course, Steiner indicated that the consumption of alcohol affects the spirit of the people and almost the aura that they have or the ego that they have. And it can be distracting to having clear thinking, which, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to think that alcohol does have an effect on the way you think. Uh, we'd like to think that if you took it in moderation, you're a better person for it. The point was that the people that we associate with biodynamically and to a certain degree anthroposophically, they don't drink alcohol for this very reason because they have to have this meditative, clear thinking. So as a consequence, the person who helped us write at the early days I said to him, it's a pity you can't enjoy the fruits of our labor since you don't drink alcohol or eat meat for that matter. And he said to me, well, James, you should just uh, produce grape juice. And we spent quite a lot of years thinking about it until finally in the end, we're now producing this grape juice called Amrita. And Amrita is Hindi for nectar of God. And it's the most, many, many juices are made from concentrate or made from fruit that's been stored, or made from a fruit that comes from foreign lands. And on one day of the year, we pick these grapes, and we make this juice and put it in a bottle. And uh, my greatest heartfelt pleasure, 
I think, in this career has been to go back to that man with a bottle of grape juice and say, there you are, I've finally done it for you. Now, how do you enjoy it? And uh, it would be hard for a wine grower to admit that we are diversifying into growing grape juice. But, you know, when you think about grape juice, you can do sorbet with it, you can make jelly with it, you can make cocktails with it, you can give it to your kids with a little bit of ginger and some hot water. As the wintertime comes on, it's a great tonic for their good health. Are there other advisors that you have to the vineyard from other streams of thought or religion? The interesting thing with biodynamics is that it's about the spiritual side of agriculture. Yes, the spirit that's alive in everybody, the ability to have compassion and to think clearly about the kingdom of nature and what Mother Nature is doing for you. And if one was to say that it was a religion as opposed to a spirit, I think that there would be a sufferance of dogma. And, you know, blind faith is, is not a very good thing, especially when, you, when you're um, working on the land. But this little man came from Tibet like 10 years ago, and he was a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And, uh, yeah, he's had a good effect. How so? He just makes you think. He, he makes you think about having happiness without suffering and your relationship to everything else that's around you. Have there been moments where you've suffered? And has that driven you forward in a way? I mean, have, has your life path altered because of that suffering at times? No, I don't think so. Not at all. I've been very blessed in that instance that uh, I just follow this. You know, when I was 14 years old, I wanted to do exactly what I'm doing today. So the suffering hasn't been there, apart from, you know, when we started off business, we were, we were paying 25% on our loans on interest, and uh, which is a, an interesting point in itself because we weren't here to mess around. We were here to get on with the job and we couldn't fail. I think in the economic situation, that's a, that's a, a thing that many, many people are suffering from in business and in life in general. And that's the kind of thing that drives us is the, the desire to survive and uh, to do it without compromising what it is that we're doing. So therefore, this my interest in, in Eastern spirituality with Buddhism is a thing, therefore, that sort of gives us a sense of warmth when things are getting a bit sharpened, I guess. It's, uh, you know, we all have a spirit inside us and we all have a soul and we have to see how that reflects on what it is that we do. We have to have, again, biodynamics is about the intention. Yes, it's not about what it is that you don't do. It's about what it is that you do do. And then you come to the point of what it is that you do do and see the, intention that you do something with and if you have uh, good intentions the results uh, uh, you get rewarded 84,000 times what does compromise mean for you and how does it affect what you do or don't do when you think about compromise and intention what do those mean for you I, I kind of think you know as human beings we're not perfect but we shouldn't be cheating especially if we're putting something into a, a bottle like as wine or grape juice in this instance we have to be sincere in what it is that we're doing. And, you know, I just think every day that, uh, that if you approach anything with a good intention, whether it's pruning a grapevine or it's making compost or it's dealing with a customer or it's blending wine or rolling barrels or cleaning tanks or putting things back in their place, uh, 
it's far easier to do it properly than it is to dick around and do it in a stupid way. I mean, we have a little sign above our toolboards and it says everything is in its place and a place for everything, which is kind of like a bit dictatorial. But, you know, I simply don't have enough time in the day to waste it um, uh, compromising the situation. The relationship that you have to the vineyard is very much intertwined with the relationship you have with your family, both in the sense that you met your wife, you moved there, your father-in-law set you up. It's a continuation of that family lineage. You're now, your own kids are moving in. How do you see the people that are in your own family to the relationship you have to the vines that are in your vineyard? As a businessman and a husband and wife team, you can, only people who are teamed together can understand the difficulty that that uh, comes into the family relationship because here you are having to make decisions about family and decisions about business. I mean, for goodness sake, I live 56 footsteps from my work. So on a Sunday at 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm not, I'm just there. We're there. And so therefore, work is pleasure and it's always continuously around us, but it becomes a little bit intoxicating. And so it does have an effect on how, the. I think that it does have an effect on how the relationship is between children and succession planning and then the relationship with your wife who is in the business as well, etc., it's not as if we shut the door on fi- at 5 o'clock on a Friday and head off. Having said that, we've had some amazing times, both here in America and in Europe, where we've combined work with holidays and we've been able to go as a family elsewhere. And uh, so, you know, that's kind of like the pleasures and we have to spend time to sit and It's a wonderful word. I love this word. You have to find the time to sit and wonder about how good it is. And if you're charging around the place, that time to sit and wonder gets stolen from you. I mean, wouldn't it be the greatest joy of a succession plan? You don't even have to go to Harvard Business School to be able to make this one work, and that is that your children want to actually do what it is that their parents are doing. We have, If they want to do that, then we've shown them that, uh, that we care. I think that's, to me, a very, uh, very, very important. It's not much point having an education and getting a career and doing a job that you don't like doing. There's no question in that at all. In fact, that's when you should stop working and find and sit and wonder and think about what it is that you're going to do. So you have to love what you're doing, working-wise. And whether it's running food in a restaurant, have a smile on your face and see the response that the customer gives back to you. Or even the guy on the street doing whatever it is he's doing, if he was to look up and smile, his work day would be so much more better, but also the people around him, their their experience of this, I suppose, aura that this person can go off would be uh, improved muchly. And so work and wonder, look, I'm sorry, I just like working. I like having a bit of time off, as I've indicated. We like having a bit of time off, as we indicated, but it's generally... I mean, one of the things my wife says to me, we want to go and visit Hanoi. And she says, but we'll never go there because there's no grapevines and you only like to go where there's grapevines. Well, you know, I think Hanoi would be fantastic. I'd love to go there. I just want to smell it. Look at the color. You spoke to me once about the curve of a winery and about how at the beginning there's a ton of energy behind a winery getting it started and then there's a claim and then there can be a drop-off in focus and attention. Throughout the world, we see wine regions that go through this generational 
time of fame. In the old world, the, the generations have kept going on and on and on, and this is a very good case to study to see why and how they've done this. In the new world, we're coming up to our 30th year now, and so I think the generational time is 30 years, or it's actually 28 years, but let's not put a spot on the place. And so therefore, you start off with great enthusiasm about what is he doing. You get some recognition, they give you some nice points, or you get a good account, or you find some good friends and stuff like that, and you keep going and going and going. And then as a time you get older and you just can't actually get down that row of grapes as fast as what you used to be able to when you're a young fella. And so you tend to slow down. And this is why I keep coming back to this imagination and inspiration, you know. Coming here to America, coming here to New York City, it just is such an inspiring city. You know, it just it puts diamonds on the soles of your shoes to see what's going on around here. So you get a kick out of it and going back home again where it's a hard toil. You know, what was, who was the English poet? He said, and the plowman homeward plods its weary way, leaving the world in darkness and to me. That is a quote that I think of a lot as to where the world is going to. And uh, so without, <laughs> without thinking too hardly about it, is the simple fact that there is such joy to be had in the job, but you start to feeling a bit mentally and physically slower. And the succession plan, as I keep referring to, is therefore then who's going to come on behind you and do this. And they have an interesting word in the English language, which is the word should. And when you speak to these younger people, I think that word should be, com should be completely erased because this is being too dictatorial as to the minds of what they could be doing or wishing to do. You've got me onto a real rave here, haven't you? Well, uh, do you have regrets? Is there things that you you could have done and didn't do? No, no, they'll they'll come they'll come the next time around. You've been there for many years. What happened over the years? What vintages have really affected you or stood out for you in your own winemaking career? You know, I think enthusiasm and confidence is the when you get a good vintage, and when you you get one chance in a year, three hundred sixty five days, and you get one chance to do it. It's not as if you're baking bread every day, or you're brewing beer every day, or you're making cookies or something like that. You get one chance, and you work really, really hard in that whole year. And the vintages where the climate changed and it got wet, or it was too cold, or you just couldn't quite get that fabric into the tapestry that you've been preparing yourself for all the season long. And uh, we say, uh, my little saying is the saddest day of the year is the last day of vintage or the last day of the harvest. Uh, I think for people who are making wine and it's just a job to them, then they can't wait to get the damn thing over so they can get on with living their life. So we have some harvests that have been less than favourable, but we've never really had any failures. We've had harvests that have been absolutely brilliant. In 2013, the wines from 2013 are just like you've got to pinch yourself to see that you're still alive because they were just a dream. The, the climate was fantastic. The flavours were perfect. Uh, it wasn't exactly 100% because, you know, it never is like that. But uh, to have an opportunity on the 30th vintage to have the 2013 wines looking so very good, it's just, uh, it's, uh, we'll never forget this vintage. And then we've had vintages in the 30 years. We would have had maybe 10 stand-up ones, seven maybe stand-up ones. And you look at those wines and just bring a smile to your face. 
2005, as an example, was a really, really, really difficult vintage. We had to we had to work hard in the vineyard to bring the grapes in in the right condition. And the wines took on quite a lot of colour as a result of the climatic condition that was happening there. But my golly, those wines, they're not perfect, but parts of them are excellent. It's just when I mean, you can get that flavour and that taste in them in an off vintage. Why did you choose wine? What moved you in that direction? There was always wine on our table. And not from an affluent point of view, but from just a farming point of view. And this, the taste of this wine, the taste of this wine when I was uh, 12 years old, I can remember it vividly, the smell of it. It was just intriguing. And uh, it just was always wine. Wine is, that's me. I love it. James Milton of Milton Vineyards. He loves it and he's still looking for it. Every day. Thank you. Thank you very much, James. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.